This podcast is created in partnership with Film Studies and the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences at the University of Sydney. We acknowledge the tradition of custodianship and law of the country on which the University of Sydney campuses stand, as well as the Darug people, where we all grew up. We pay our respects to those who have cared for and continue to care for country. I wish I knew how to quit. I see Hello, hello, I'm filmmaker and comedian Craig Anderson and welcome to Film vs Film. This is the podcast where every episode we throw two different films into the ring together, discuss their place in history, their modern virtues and how they stack up against each other which film will hold up and which film will be left on the cutting room floor. With me today, as always, are my childhood best friends, film lover and part-time New York subway engineer, Herschel Isaacs. Hello, Craig. Hi, Bruce. Hello to all the listeners out there. And also with us is Herschel's identical twin brother, associate professor in film studies at the University of Sydney. It's Dr. Bruce Isaacs. Hey, guys. Really nice to be here. As always, we'd like to remind you that we grew up in Western Sydney and we'd like to shout out to one of the places that made us love film. Today, boys, I'm thinking of Penrith City Council Public Library System. <laughs> yeah, think yeah, about that, it. That's a curveball right? you've thrown Every us, day. I'll tell you. Okay, so we've got... No, no, it's true because, yeah, it's St. Clair. St. Clair that Public Library. High School. We went there every day we after went, high school, I think. I remember spending... So much time in that St. Clair Library. Mm-hmm. And you know they had those um, rotating uh, book stands? Yeah, yeah, I yeah. I just go through those over and over. But they also had movies. They had yeah, a film. Right. That was the thing that was really surprising when we got there and you could borrow a movie to watch. That fault is how I was there. <laughs> <laughs> the reason you threw me then was I was thinking, Penrith? Like, well, we were never even allowed to travel near Penrith. Okay, so <laughs> for people who don't know, Penrith is a region, as in like inner city... Yeah. Region, it's about but 10 minutes, 15 minutes from where we lived. Yeah, and we yeah. were on the edge. St. Clair was the last suburb before you crossed over to Colleton and Mount Druitt, which were in Blacktown City Council. So okay. we were a part of that system. And we would also, in our final years of high school, went to St. Mary's, Mary's Library. Public we, Library. We studied for the HSC at St. Mary's Library. I as remember a whole that. Group. I had my first kiss in that car park. <laughs> <laughs> with one, not with one of you two. <laughs> <laughs> one of the librarians. <laughs> but th- think about it. The library is also where we could get DVDs and VHS. Yeah, for you know, sure. It was yeah. another source of things that we... And I remember they had a very different... They had education, a lot of educational yeah. stuff. But they had a lot of uh, popular culture stuff. Yeah. And I think that's why the library uh, meant a lot to us. You know, we kind of grew up with that world of popular culture. So lots of genre stuff, movies, but books. Well, there were books and scripts yeah. there. I remember because, yeah. you know, I did drama and stuff. I was always picking up scripts there and f- they had film scripts, which blew my mind. I couldn't yeah. understand that films even had scripts. And Bruce, mum got into um, borrowing, you know, the Barbara Cartland yeah, stuff? Yeah, yeah. They made miniseries all out, of the, out of the novels. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Which you still have now, but they were all on VHS. So you'd, you'd borrow these huge tomes of VHS. Like three tapes, yeah. yeah. Lace. Well, yeah, one. lace. I've got lace on VHS. I've got really? both of those, oh, uh, Lace 1 and 2, starring Phoebe Cates from memory. Wow. Yeah, That yeah, must have yeah. been really early for Phoebe Cates. Yeah, I think it might have been after she'd been successful enough to make the cover of the VHS. Like, she was the person she they She must have listed. already done Fast Times at Reach One High. Yeah, for and sure. And then onto something yeah. like her own thing. I don't know. I think this is a different lace I'm thinking about. This is like an old, old lace. Yeah, no, no, right. it's, it's true. Like the, the colour is 80s. like a pink satin yeah, with a little yeah, light blue ribbon across it and it says lace. Yeah. 
Well, I just wanted to shout out to the public library system because it's a place you can still get DVD. You can still get movies. I wonder movies. if people still have that relationship to the library that we all had. You know, like it was just something you did. There was not many places to go. No. So look, you went to the library and hung out there for maybe it's a certain, an hour and a half or so? A certain type of person It's a goes certain there. cohort you're yeah. talking about. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. Not, it's, not, it's not everybody. I went to Burbank Library in LA recently and I used to hang out there for a bit and it is still thriving. They've got... they've pivoted their library collection away from books and onto DVDs and CDs. And there are all types of people. It's like a very busy That's It's location. so interesting because, for example, I don't, I don't really use anything other than digital files of, of things that you can get. So it's interesting that there's still this world where people borrow stuff. And I they go to the library a lot. One of the things I got at, at Penrith City Library was a book about Hammer Horror Films. And at that time in the 90s, knowing that films exist but having no way ever of seeing them yeah it was mine like the, the world has changed so much yeah. now you buy a subscription you download it illegally you'll find a way to watch a film it's mostly on youtube now but when you when i was a kid when we were boys yeah. you went to the library and the only way you could even you find a book that's hidden amongst you know all these other books you open it you start reading about films that you can't believe exist yeah you'll never see them that's what i believe and that's true across everything i think i yeah. think now one of the things i miss is that anticipation of getting something that you've been after. Can you, yeah. where can you ever get that Different. again? You but can never get that anymore. I think those things that you can and can't find, they end up establishing like canons yeah. and canonical histories. So even, you know, let's say you grew up in a particular place and you found all of Fellini and you watched it. Mm. That's because that was authorized in the place you were at. But that idea of being able to find anything it, well, it's still not with us. I get, you know, I I get furious all the time with not being able to find something <laughs> because, um, you know, streaming services compete with each other and there are certain points of focus. And but I think uh, those things that you can't find and that you can find, they establish real canonical histories for good or bad. Yeah, I remember uh, Clockwork Orange in university. Yeah, was a VHS tape that someone had smuggled out of England and was being passed around so people could watch it. Wow, that's amazing. It was the amazing. only way to see Clockwork Orange. We had a guy, uh, he, I think he'd be very happy for me to mention him. His name is Christopher Hartney uh, in Religious Studies. He, um, for a while, they taught Salo. Wow. And he got the library somehow to buy a copy of Salo when it was wow. still on that unrated yeah, group. Yeah. They had not made its way to Australia. So they bought a DVD from Britain. So he teach it, but the thing was, it became um, soon after he started teaching it, it became clear it was illegal to teach it, <laughs> and and I'm not making this up. It vanished from the library catalog uh, the next Whoa. week. It went. It was put underground. You, so you couldn't find Salo. I think that's on YouTube now. Fantastic. It, I think it's on it YouTube might, it might now. be because now now it's widely available. I think, I think it's now it's just a highlight video with the music. <laughs> <laughs> hey, on that note, right, Craig and I went to see Salo mm. at... Uh, Third Eye Cinema, it was called, in Surrey Hills. Was it? Yeah. I thought it was Chevelle in... in uh, no, no, it was a very special cinema. Is that, that right? only, It's now the Gaelic Club. Um, which I is, And you get out of Central and you walk up that little road towards yeah. Strawberry Hills. We caught a train from Mount Druid Station. And we left before it ended because yeah, we because had to we get had the to last, get the last train. train. There was nowhere to get home. Yeah, we <laughs> we went to our own personal silo out of Mount Druid <laughs> Station. <laughs> yeah, but I remember, so that's how, I remember when Chris Hartney was teaching it, I thought, whoa, I have a special relationship to this movie. Loads of respect to the public library system. Thank you for giving us a whole bunch of movies. Up. All right, today's episode will be full of spoilers. So if you haven't watched the films, cover your ears for the next 90 minutes. Let's get into it. 
take one. First up on today's show, The Taking of Pelham 123. Made in 1974 and directed by TV and film director Joseph Sargent, it's the story of four gunmen who forcefully take control of the titular New York City subway train with 18 passengers on board. They park the train on a subway tunnel and hold the city for ransom for $1 million. If the city doesn't meet their demands, they will kill one hostage per minute. Holy God, what do you want? I'm taking your train. On the other side of the negotiation is character actor Walter Matthau, who younger listeners might remember from the film Grumpy Old Men and Grumpier Old Men in the 90s. He's joined by Head of Transit Police Jerry Stiller, who you might recognise as George Costanza's father in Seinfeld, and a whole cast of grizzled and inconvenienced New Yorkers. Progressive in its representation of a black police commissioner and regressive in its nagging fear of a female workforce, the film is an exciting blend of suspense, action and humour. A box office and critical success when it was released, the film remains a favourite in the caper genre and can be seen in most territories on a streaming device even today. Bruce, what's your take on the taking of Pelham 123? Yeah, thanks Craig. Uh, This is a a really fun topic for me because I love action movies and watching Pelham a couple of times for this podcast, I realized that it must be one of the most influential action films. So what I love about it is that we all grew up with this kind of genre. And I know we're coming to that with Die Hard and how it set a template for the next 20, 30 years of action. But it's so interesting going back and kind of looking at some of the marks that a movie like Pelham uh, left on the action genre. So. I want to make a case that this is the kind of film that means we can take action cinema very seriously. Like, I don't think this is a movie just about thrills and entertainment and the kind of film that we should not be talking about or learning something from. So a couple of things. I got an enormous amount of just joy and pleasure watching this movie. Uh, I loved the fact that it was constantly suspenseful. Um, thrilling, and that's kind of what it operated on. It wanted you to be thrilled by what you were watching. So it's kind of an anti-intellectual cinema, and that's not me saying it's stupid, but that what action cinema does is it can say, I can leave intellectualism at the door, and this is about visceral action and speed and acceleration, and what do you feel from those things? And Pelham um, does that so sophisticatedly. So... The reason I think it's so uh, influential is I think action movies go through a whole bunch of, you know, variations in the way they're structured and the kinds of things they do. So this is what Pelham does for me. It gives us the first example of stuff that we all know now. Think of the Bourne movies or think of any of the kind of tech action movies that that we grew up and that we watch. Mm. This idea that in the city there's a whole bunch of locales and they all are connected. And that what the movie is driven by, what its narrative is driven by is not linearity, but cutting across different spaces and always establishing the relationship. That for me is a whole new kind of action cinema that absolutely does not dominate Hollywood, I'd say from 1930 to 1970. This is something that's really interesting, really new. In Pelham, you've got the command center. That's where Walter Matthau is. They actually call it the command center, right? You think about movies like um, the opening to Born Supremacy, where you're in the CIA headquarters. They've got the big screens of surveillance, and now it's global. 
But yep. yeah, the big thrill is, I don't know if you guys are like me, I love watching the boards. <laughs> yeah. Do yeah. you like watching you know, where the lights go? Oh, on I love the lights showing the, lights. the train line. So yeah. I that's think also the opening to Bourne Ultimatum. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And we, uh, I know we'll mention a bit later, Tony Scott doing the remake and Unstoppable. Mm. The amount of close-ups you get on the boards that show the movement of objects in this big geographic space. And I guess I think Palom is the first movie to do this. And this is going to sound a little bit sort of nerdy and theory-based, but I think what it gives us is a non-linear way of thinking about the action in the city, that now action is dispersed. There are lots of locales. you got the command center, you got the train. On the train, you got cultures of terrorists, they all got their little stories going. You got hostages, their little stories in that. So I think of it as kind of, you know, layers of things all working together in, in a geography. You got the police on the street. Um, you got cuts to citizens of the city, either in traffic or traffic jams or on sidewalks. And one of my favorites is the the, the mayor's mansion. <laughs> yeah, you I know, love well, that guy. This guy <laughs> who he's concerned because there's an election. Like what a trope that's become. Yeah, that there's an election upcoming and the state is just weak. So you know, it's just like it's like really fascinating. I want to. Can I go? Can I throw yeah, back to that? Yes. I just want to reference that. So I think I read this wonderful thing a couple of days ago where a person said they felt that it was a love letter to the complexity of New York City. Yeah, so I, I love that description because. Um, so I was reading a little bit about the the Metropolitan Transit Department. So there was a lot of negotiation with them as to what Pelham could achieve. Mm. As a movie, do you mean? As they were trying to make this, and that movie. was very complicated. So I'll give you an example. The um, so the MTD said that they wanted them to take an extra twenty million dollar insurance policy, <laughs> what yeah. they called the Cook policy, and what that was was if this movie generated people to try this, that they did not want to be held responsible. That was an entire wow. negotiation. Well, to hijack a train. Yes. <laughs> so that's no, but also the dead man's. You know the lever, the dead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Um, it turns out in the original, uh, the original script of this, they had great detail on that. They actually got experts in to say, this is what you can do, this is what you can't do on a train. The MTD said, there's no way in the world we're going to allow you to put that in it. I saw at the end of the film, the two, there were two title ca- uh, two you know, cards in the, in the titles, uh, credits. One of them said, thanks to New York, you're great. And the other one said, oh, and that department does, did not offer any technical <laughs> or something <laughs> advice in regards to this film. One of the sticking points for um, for the makers of the film was that they wanted to film it to give complete realism because mm. realism underpins this entire movie if you think about it. And yeah. it's very this closed. This is the era of American film realism. Absolutely. You look at French Connection, um, Serpico, Dirty they're not Harry. Trying, they're not right, trying to make it look even good. Dog, dog Day Afternoon. Dog Day Afternoon. I was, really was going to say this before. No, when because that's, time, right? that's thrown in the mix constantly yeah. with this film. So you've got Dog Day Afternoon, Serpico, Death Wish. Yeah. Um, they're all thrown together in the mix. The one that really stuck out for me with the MTD, what they said is, we will not allow you to show any graffiti. And so so the filmmaker said, well, that's ridiculous. People are going to laugh at us. They're going (laughs) to think, well, you've made a set. This is not realism at all. And it's so interesting because 1976, which is just a little while later, Scorsese is going to shoot Taxi Driver. And the whole image of New York as um, this sort of place of crime and, and filth and that Travis is kind of movies, or you spend your whole time in the movie in it, and they don't want to show graffiti. That's so I find that so interesting. And Dog, Dog Day f- is, is 75, the year between okay. those two films. Wow, so that, that's quite amazing. We talked, so Serpico, 
Dog Day Afternoon, Death Wish, French Connection a couple of years earlier, and Pelham are all essentially New York realist movies about the it's about the city and the people mm. and when does woody allen make his new york movies what 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 uh, like later 70s i think so 70s, when's manhattan okay. that's 1978 80, 80 somewhere around there uh, any but, that's, but, but you know that's a really great point of comparison because woody allen is all sort of whimsical. rhapsodic yeah. and lyrical and whimsical this is hardcore where is american realism repulsion set what is that about? No, it's London. That's uh, London? Mid-60s, oh, okay. yeah. Forget that. But, but that's an interesting one because baby. when she walks through the, the city, mm. you have a, di- a similar kind of realism of the street. Yeah. And of, you know, that, that in some sense it's kind of traumatic for, for the yeah, Carol yeah. character in Repulsion. Well, I was thinking of Ms. 45, which is Yeah, which I haven't seen. 80, you always tell me about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, um, sorry, Rosemary's Baby, 68, I think. 68, so yeah. Yeah. you've got this, people are falling in love with New York yeah. on film yeah, and depicting New York City on film. And I think... For me, that's one of my favorite parts of Pelham. The other thing I'd say is, this is Robert Shaw. At he's right <laughs> between. He's come off. Um, he's come off the Sting. Mm. He's done this, and then he goes straight onto Jaws. Yeah, Jaws so will be his next film. Exactly. Right? So yeah. Robert Shaw is on an absolute hot streak here. Mm, yeah. So Robert Shaw, once again, he's absolutely wonderful in this. Yeah, he's, he's great. If you contrast him with Walter Matthau, they well, they I was going to say, I reckon Alan Rickman's. Yes. And I've yes. got that He's in the absolutely oh, yeah. modelled on the minimalism of Robert Shaw. Absolutely. And this kind of urbane, he's, he's, he's sort of, he considers himself higher than the other terrorists. Yeah. You know, like he, I'm, he's educated, he's smart, he's, he's together. The others are a bit all over the shop. Well, you know, it's the benefits of a classical education. In, so in that's a heart, key yeah. part of, of Hans Gruber. Yeah. Yeah, even in a plotting sense, the two yeah. of them work very much the same. Uh, and so one other thing I wanted to add to this whole discussion of the city of New York, I think what Pelham gives us also is a kind of cinema, and this is going to be big, I think, in the action genre, which is not necessarily about lone heroic characters. right? And that's going to be overturned, I think, in the decade of the 80s and then feeding into something like Bruce Willis in Die Hard. But this is a movie that's much more about the collective of the city. You know, It's about people... Um, and even though Walter Matthau becomes a kind of focal point, he's nothing like the action hero genre that we'll come to know in the 80s and 90s. <laughs> so I think I would say that Pelham is much closer to Sonny and his story in Dog Day Afternoon mm. than it is to John McClane in Die Hard, which is about, what, 15 years later. It's just but something's happening in the mid-70s in America with this kind of cinema. I think that's right, but what's interesting is I think, I mean, I'm going to talk about this, but I think John McClane is also a, a kind of pullback from Schwarzenegger, yeah. Predator. Yeah. And, and so yeah. I'm really interested in that. Yeah. So to me, it's much closer to Walter Matthau in, yeah. in Pelham. See, I agree and with the yeah. realism I think of that. I mean, he, McClane is like um, Jackie Chan was to Bruce Lee. Yeah. You know, he yeah. says. But don't forget, all those people that are still lone heroic figures who defeat any kind of collective, like a state. Right, like a as of opposed to a city defeating. Unlike Walter Matthau, he's working yeah, for the yeah. city. This is this Because if you think about it, the, con- the command centre plus all its offshoots, it's a bunch of people working together to solve a big problem in the city. And uh, when we come to my mission saying I'm doing the whole delivery of the money, which yeah. I think is yeah. one of the great sequences. <laughs> yeah. right? yeah, it's I'll a city coming together. The point that I think um, for me resonates in terms of Pelham and Die Hard is that they both use humour in a way that I think action movies, you couldn't really do it anymore. Now you can do slapstick, you can have Rush Hour or something like that. Yeah. But back then, certainly with Pelham, and I think Die Hard for me is just the pinnacle of it, 
the humor is really complex and it's satirical, and yet you've got mm. an action movie. And the final thing I say about Pelham is that I think the pacing of it is what is very special. I think it's a slow moving, mm. it's a slow burn action movie. Yeah, we've kind of yeah. lost all and that it's in not, action. And yeah. you know, it's not going to be jump to jump to jump, now something's gonna yep. blow up. It's, it's just a, allowing you to sit there and just enjoy this, the unwinding of it. I don't even know if you could make this now. It's hard for me to even say. Well, I think you, I think you can, but you could never do it in the same way because, and this was my last point on my take on Pelham, is that this is such a movie about the, 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 the physical side of the city, like trains and how things click in and our doors open and close. And I think where this movie is now is in hyper-digital land, which is like born and it's, geographic spaces that are all like satellites and mm. things are connected and moving in spaces of surveillance that are so abstract. You even look at the modern Bond films where I was literally at the my, is like all if you that, think yeah. of, so mm. I, I see Pelham as the kind of analogical site when the city was like a real material thing. If you think of Skyfall yeah. when Bond and Q are standing in front of the London the, the, the image of the London tube, I think that's what this has become. Yeah. It's this it's a completely computerized system. Back here, it's still, things are connected, cords and well, it's like I mean, material. Bo it's Bond is like Iron Man. He's relying on digital things being yeah. done for him yeah. somewhere else. There's no digital in But in if, Pelham, you know, right? in the yeah. 70s, he's given a pen and a coffee mug that's <laughs> gonna do that. everything for him. I love but that it's, there's no digital. But Bond right? is still pulling back. The Skyfall is a hell of a long way from Moonraker, for example. <laughs> so, you know, he, he still finishes the, the movie with a shotgun, yeah, right? Yeah. And he's, he's loading the double barrel every time. Yeah, yeah. But in that way, Skyfall was a deliberate, you remember, because the whole thing of Skyfall Absolutely. is yeah, going, we're going, going back, back to the past. But that's, and I think I've always thought that last scene in Skyfall is a kind of re reworking of the ending of Straw Dogs, the pecking part mm -hmm. movie. But to yeah. some extent, that acknowledges films like Pelham and it acknowledges films like Die Hard because it's saying, you know, that formula still works. I read a wonderful thing that I'll talk about with Die Hard where the person says, sometimes imitation isn't a bad thing if you've mm -hmm. got the perfect formula. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think that's what these and films Pelham add. They're up, fantastic. I think. Yeah. All right, so now I just want to make it clear that there was a 2008 uh, remake of this film. It was by Tony Scott, and it had uh, Denzel Washington and John Travolta was the bad guy. I think what Tony Scott does with it is like unbelievably revealing of what happens to the action genre. Mm -hmm. And then he also made a movie called Unstoppable, mm -hmm. which is also about a train. That's also about a train. Also about a train. And what binds them all together is that they're all kind of riffs on the same idea. What happens if a train is out of control? Mm. And how do people kind of mobilize around that out of control train? Isn't that like so Tony Scott's life that was <laughs> out of control at the well, time? But it's also like, you know, he's really, I'm really interested in the idea. I call it uh, uh, in my current research project, vehicular movement. <laughs> the idea of movement through vehicles, which has been a big thing in cinema history. That's like the like first you, film, right? Like, like, like I was just watching The General, Buster Keaton. The oh, it's right? so good. And this idea of what does a train mean to the history of cinema? Mm. So I'm watching The General thinking, my God, this is like laying the groundwork for everything that's gonna happen with trains. Like the heist, the breaking apart of, of, of carriages, mm -hmm. like the way that the guy's gotta run and catch up, jump on the thing. And the so sleepers in front of the train and well, picking so them up. So all of those tropes, right, are gonna be back with Pelham, yeah. but then they're all back again with the remake, 
And they're really all done amazingly well in Unstoppable, which is by far Tony Scott's best movie. He's made it, a lot of terrible movies. Wow. It's interesting because I've been reading about the 2009, 2009, I think, remake, right? I think it's 2009. Yeah, I've been right, reading about yeah. it. They say that Tony Scott takes it to the nth degree because he's basically shooting a commercial when he makes movies. <laughs> and they said, <laughs> so they said the original had one um, freeze. Mm. Um, and in this movie, it's just a constant filming of the movie in, 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 in what, what's it called? Freeze frames? Like freeze frames. Okay. So that's, it's, that's constant, right? What they say is different, though, is that depending on how you take John Travolta in that movie, mm. either <laughs> you're going to be entertained by John Travolta's craziness, which is like Broken Arrow, but taken yeah. a, a lot further, or you're going to think this is one of the weirdest things I've ever seen, mm. and which is where John Travolta's career has really gone from <laughs> there on in. <laughs> but that's why I do want to see it, because... Walter Matthau is so understated. Mm. All of it is so realistic. I mean, that's what I've got in my notes, obviously. We'll talk more yeah. about it in a bit. That's, it's a really good comparison because um, the remake is a star vehicle, and you can see that Tony Scott and the studios were thinking this is going to be the big hit of the summer. Um, the original is, I think, a movie about the city. Yeah. And I think that's the big... That's what, what makes Die Hard so interesting because Die Hard is kind of a negotiation of the two. You know, like but it's also, well, who's it a star vehicle for? This is 14 years after Pulp Fiction, right? Mm. What did they think John Travolta, what he did, Michael? What, what on <laughs> earth? Yeah, but Denzel, what, Washington, uh, Denzel Washington is a massive star oh, at this Denzel point. Denzel Washington. Denzel's bigger than John Travolta. Sorry. So yeah. Sorry. And <laughs> Unstoppable is after this, I think, isn't it? Is Unstoppable after? Yeah, I think Unstoppable is about 2014. But isn't that interesting? That's Denzel Washington, or does he love trains? That's Denzel Washington <laughs> no, no, again. See, Tony Scott, he is like a number of filmmakers who became really interested in a kind of form in cinema. Mm. I think he becomes really interested in action scenes and he figures what's the best way you do this? Use a train. Like there's there's no greater metaphor but in you cinema look at, for movement. But also, I think the metaphor of train in Snowpiercer yeah. and the yeah, absolutely. train to Bassan, last train yeah, to Bassan, yeah. is an excellent, like it deals with class, it can deal Not with... Not only that, you look at the but great stylists of cinema... Mm. They shoot half the movies in train stations. Yeah. Like, like look at Brian De Palma, right? Look at his great scenes like Dress to Kill or Carlito's Way. Or even Untouchables in the train oh, station. Oh, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But I think I there's a reason for it, though. I think for me, and I'm bringing this into Die Hard, but for me the overarching reason is that it builds a kind of claustrophobia. Yeah. yeah. See, if you take a train, you're murder on the Orient Express. Yeah. yeah. Murder mystery never got better than on a train where the killer is sitting in a carriage with yeah. you. But then you Especially if your train gets derailed in a snowstorm. Which is exactly yeah. what happens. Take, I mean, I'm going to be talking about this, but take Die Hard. Mm. You take an incredibly dangerous situation, but you force a person not only into a skyscraper, but onto one floor mm. of the skyscraper. So for me, the claustrophobia yeah. is an absolute and that in my structural, um, you know, of, of importance in all of this. I, I think that's, I, this is a really good discussion because my entire reading of Pelham is about what it's going to do with the idea of space and action in space and the way that it's going to lay the groundwork for movies like Speed. Yeah, You know, Speed's going to be, what well, can we make it more literal than Pelham? Yeah, let's just make a bus that can't stop. You know, that sort of thing. Well, what about even Back to the Future 3 in, in, oh, yeah, in, in the yeah, linear yeah, narrative the of yeah. time and yeah. the railway? You know, yeah. like that's awesome. Or have you seen Runaway Train with... Eric Roberts I have, and John like I, I think I have, years, ago, years yeah. ago. I I thought it was yeah. really good when I saw yeah, it. Yeah. I loved Yeah. Let's go and back. Can I make just one yeah. other very quick thing? All of this goes back to that moment in like the very start of cinema, eighteen ninety five, the arrival of a train at a station. <laughs> yeah. I'm not I'm, I mean that sounds kinda nerdy. No, it's but not but it's so important <laughs> for this whole lineage. Like filmmakers from the word go were interested in 
how can movies show us a new kind of movement? So the thing that's, that, that ramps up in the late 19th century, mid 19th or late 19th century is the train and like train tracks across continents. Yeah. And it just so happens that at like roughly the same time, movies pop up. So there's this amazing intersection of and cinema and new kinds of movement. We can't discuss trains without me throwing in my favourite film, uh, The Train by Frank. Oh Heimann. yeah, <laughs> I, can't you know, like yes. I can't believe it took us 15 minutes to mention <laughs> The Train. I was thinking of The Train the whole way through this. But, but because it was the, yeah, but the even train. you know the ending of that and mm -hmm. and the the. the Moving, what, how important it is to move that train from one place yeah, to yeah, another yeah. is fantastic. And also what the train symbolises, yeah. which is the working class and the movement of people resisting. And you're fighting the Nazis who are carrying this old guard of art and, also and, and an old culture. Uh, higher class and intellectualism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's very much like Snowpiercer. The, the yeah. workers are the people yeah. fueling the train yeah. and they're trying to stop that. Yeah. But it's and when you look at the geography of a train or, or the spatial dynamics of a train... Um, Again, I come back to that limited kind of environment. Yeah. Um, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade was River Phoenix running through yeah, the train. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and the different carriages represent different parts of the train. And if you watch that, this is how cinema's changed so much, right? You see how they shoot that? So many wide shots mm. to give you a sense of the spatial relationship of one carriage to the next into the whole. Whereas now if people shoot things, it's like, you know, it's like... Uh, uh, it'd be like um, Bond, Bond jumping onto the back of the yeah, train. Just and cutting, The cutting camera and going and with him. Yeah. Take two. Our second film today is Die Hard from 1988. Now, it's considered by many as the greatest action film ever made. Die Hard is the third film by director John McTiernan, and it was his follow-up to the year before's Predator, which is an action sci-fi jungle film starring Arnold Schwarzenegger. The film sees the charming star of TV's Moonlighting, Bruce Willis, as New York City cop John McClane, who finds himself in LA visiting his estranged wife's corporate Christmas party. The party itself is taking place high up inside the newly constructed Nakatomi Plaza. During the celebrations, a team of terrorists take over the building and attempt to crack the company's safe whilst bluffing with the LAPD and the FBI. Now, now, talk to me. What's going on here? Ask the FBI. They got the universal terrorist playbook and they're running it step by step. It's up to John McClane to use his street smarts to take down the terrorists. Die Hard was a box office smash that has since spawned four sequels and been critically re-evaluated as one of the best action films of all time, and in the last few years has sparked a debate on whether or not it should be considered a Christmas classic as well. Herschel, what's your take on Die Hard? It is the greatest action film of all time. <laughs> Every Christmas, my 10-year-old son Lockie and I, we watch three movies, It's a Wonderful Life, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, and Die Hard. It's that important to us. I remember the very first time I saw it, Bruce and I, on the recommendation of, of our older brother, went to Grognall Flick's uh, <laughs> a, a strange video store that we grew up in, in, in the surrounds of. We borrowed this movie, and although we were quite young, we realized that we were watching something truly special. I definitely remember at the end of it, mm. we both said... It's our favorite movie of all time. Of all time. Yeah. Of all time. Yeah. Like immediately upon the end, you my just thought first you're in the in you're in the company of something special. You. I didn't get to borrow. My parents wouldn't let me, but I taped <laughs> it off TV. I remember watching the TV cut, yeah, which 10. had a whole bunch of weird replacement of dialogue for swearing. That was so. Funny. I think it, in 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 the TV version, it was just yippee ki yay at the end. <laughs> <laughs> I want to say something very quickly. For the movies that came after Die Hard. Anything to do with any kind of terrorist envi environment comes from Die Hard. A couple of movies, Under Siege, Speed, 
White Ass Down, Toy Soldiers. The latest one I'd reference is Skyscraper, which is basically a oh, remake. I just saw that recently. Yeah, basically a remake of Die Hard. It's The Rock. The only thing they've changed is The Rock has a prosthetic leg, which is, I mean, I find that kind of a gimmicky thing in the movie, but it is exactly Die Hard. The power of Die Hard is that it's been imitated so often, but it's never been bettered. One really quick thing. The only reason we have this amazing work of art is because, first of all, it was shopped around to everybody under the sun. As far afield as Burt Reynolds, Richard Gere, or John McClane. It was offered to Bruce Willis. He couldn't do it at the time of Moonlighting. And then Sybil Shepherd fell pregnant. They closed Moonlighting for 11 weeks, and he filmed Die Hard, and we got John McClane. I'm going to talk about four things that I think are central to making this the greatest action film of all time, and really one of the greatest bits of entertainment and escapism you could find. First of all, Bruce Willis' as John McClane is the everyman. You had Arnold Schwarzenegger, you had Sylvester Stallone, you had the the very the archetype of a comic book character. John McClane is a fish out of water. I mean, I think you have to give John McClane the director some credit here. It's a huge risk. They were making a ton of money off the back of people like Schwarzenegger. Um, McClane comes in. I, I think I heard they shopped it to Schwarzenegger. They did shop Stallone. it. They tried to get them. Schwarzenegger turned it down. But they didn't want to do it. Absolutely. And so this is a massive like move in the genre by a bit of happenstance that Bruce Willis because of the moonlighting thing, but also that all these other people turned it down. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I, I heard that the, the novel, which is from the 60s or 70s, 70s, the first adaptation, they were looking at Frank Sinatra to be the guy, right? Well, Roderick Thorpe had written a previous novel, mm. um, which was more detective story. Frank Sinatra was the star of the adaptation of that. As a result, ah. they then thought, okay, Sinatra will be John McClane. Sinatra, by the time, was too old. That would have been That would have been laughable. <laughs> Blue Eyes playing John McClane. Mm. Ridiculous. Yeah. But it got to McClane. What I'm saying is it got to Bruce Willis just through accident. It's, it's an absolute lottery mm. that it got to him. He's the everyman because, for example, he's making fists with his toes. He doesn't fit in. He's not a tough mm. guy. He's got a two-month backlog of sleaze bags he's got to put behind yeah. bars. Complete fish out of water. I've got a note here saying John McClane was, or Bruce Willis wasn't even a part of the early marketing and trailers of this film. Until they cottoned on, somebody said, okay, this is really working. And they released the line saying, John McClane is an easy man to like, but a hard man to kill. And <laughs> I think that's the point. <laughs> I love um, 80s taglines. He's basically Tom Hanks, the everyman star, and he becomes the representative of the, 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 the terrorist, you know, mm. the, the terrorist solution, I suppose. The other thing I quickly say is the structure, it's just the hero's journey. It's a person who's nothing, who's lost his wife who has a failing job, um, who is disgruntled, fish out of water, and then saves the day. So really, this structure has been repeated again mm. and again in these kinds of films. But where these people deserve credit is the way that they did it. It's so powerful. Yeah, but this, can I also, this, uh, I think all that's absolutely true. I think this is such a heroic kind of narrative in the same way that superhero movies are heroic narratives. But what makes it so interesting in the late 80s is that I see it as a kind of trumping of globalization by a, like like an american ethos so if you think about it nakatomi the whole building's destroyed right <laughs> this whole idea of the global corporation that's going to take over america and the fears of that in the 80s and who's gonna kind of come out on top 
this New York cop who's the most American figure you could imagine. So it has a so parallel with... So there's an interesting with, uh, ideology that's mapped onto well, the always, yeah, yeah. I was always, yeah. or was, I was always prone to Roy Rogers or something. Yeah, so yeah. Yeah. In fact, that's such an excellent point. It's interesting that it's... Um, I can't remember what Hans says to him. Do you think you're a Marshall Dillon? Yeah, and yeah. The fact that he says Roy Rogers just screams out a certain American sort of mythos that this is channeling. Um, one other thing I just wanted to say, the, the, the point you make is so important about what Bruce Willis is, because he's not Arnold, he's not Sylvester Stallone. Um, there's this uh, really important book in, in, uh, in film scholarship called, uh, I think it's called Hard Bodies, and it talks about this transformation of the, the, the sort of the muscle body into the soft, sensitive body that will come to signify all sorts of new things about new kinds of men. And it was this, this, this sort of tension between being a man and what did it mean politically to be a man in the late 80s that was so different in the mid-80s. Like, so Hirsch and I always joke mm. about a line in that movie Commando with Schwarzenegger mm -hmm. when he's reading the paper, sitting next to his daughter, played by Alyssa Milano, and he goes... And why don't they just call him Girl George? It will cut down all the confusion, I think. <laughs> right, so Arnold says that. And if you think about that as a kind of gender like position in a mainstream movie that is supposed to elicit gags from everyone in the cinema. Mm. Fast forward a few years and you have a really different kind of image of what does it mean to be a man? You've got to be sensitive. You've got to be a bit... Yeah, but you've you know, also got HIV at the time. So, you, so that changes everything around yeah, that, that yeah. communication, but I mean, that HIV kind of was conversation. It was, was even bigger like when movies like Amanda would be made. Yeah. You know, but, but you're right. I think something has changed, right? And that hard body becomes a different kind of body. I just want to go back to Alan Rickman's Hans Gruber. Yeah. So we're going to have a chance, I think, when, we, when I get through this and we, and we go into the, the commentary on it, I think Alan Rickman's Hans Gruber stands as one of the great villains of all time. Reminds me of Auric Goldfinger, a person who stands alongside Bond and really makes Goldfinger a wonderful movie. I just think Rickman brought, obviously, a, a stagecraft that he, that he learned in the theater. He brought an acting kind of prowess that you mm. don't get mm. in villainy. But at the same time, the point I want to make is that Bruce Willis brings an acting talent that really, and I love Arnold Schwarzenegger death, um, but he doesn't have the range <laughs> of a Bruce Willis. <laughs> Stallone perhaps less, and if you go to Seagal and people like Van Damme, Van Damme yeah. they're even further along the line to really not being able to act. So, And definitely not to emote. Because yeah. like Bruce Willis yeah. has to emote in lots of ways. You could never write many of those scenes for a Schwarzenegger because it would be um, laughable. Right? Bruce he Willis has always it. said yeah. that Rickman made McLean so interesting that people people gravitated toward McLean and and his plight because of Alan Rickman because Alan Rickman was such a well-rounded character. And I think mm. that goes a lot. Sorry, Alan, I'm saying Hans Gruber character. Mm. And I think that goes the credit of it goes a lot to Alan Rickman and what he brought out in that role. Well, Remember, he goes into Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves afterwards. So he's <laughs> making a massive run. Robin Hood, yeah. Prince of Thieves was the biggest film of the year. Actually, that just reminds me that Naked Gun 33 and a third beat Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves on the opening weekend, which was a huge upset, <laughs> a huge upset. But Alan Rickman at the time is on a massive role. Yeah. Uh, becomes a, he's basically a Hollywood star at that point. I mean, Hans is a, such a special character. There's I've never really been that again. I was listening to uh, Stephen D'Souza, the guy who wrote yeah. Yeah. most of it on set, uh, talk about at some point the, all of them were sitting around uh, catering uh, uh, during a meal and realized that Hans and McLean never meet. 
and it's a missed opportunity that they should meet. And that's when they so wrote they that scheduled. They wrote oh. that scene. He had two nights to write it, and he was writing it as they that's were getting the ready to scenes. prepare it. Yeah, that it's amazing. amazing. And when you watch that movie, even if, if it's for the first time, or well, you know, down uh, when you've whether you've seen it many times, when that scene appears, you realize just how complex the plotting is. Hi there. How you doing? Please, God, no! You're one of them, aren't you? You're one of them. Don't kill me, don't kill me, please, please, please. Whoa, 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 relax. Relax, I'm not going to hurt you. I'm not going to hurt you. Because to make that work as a suspenseful scene, you've got to, like, we need to understand as an audience what is the structure of the Nakatomi building? How do Hans and McLean end up at the same place at the same time? The genius of that movie is, I think of it as wide framing in narrative terms. You have to explain to me where everybody is at all times, I can buy into that drama when but they meet. Picking up on what you, you, you said with the control room, I mean, you mm. look at the, the way it's they... Like control room. The yeah. amount of times they show the lift and the, yeah, yeah, where yeah. the lights are in the lift so yep. you know where you are. So always. So I was right. reading up on the design of this. I'm gonna, just give me a second. I want to come to sure. that because I actually think the design of this is, is one of the great features of the film and one of the great risks that this film takes. And I, and I think this does it better than any film has done it by a long way. The third thing I'll quickly say is the humour of Die Hard. I think Pelham is very funny in places. I think um, Ben Stiller's dad is, it, at times, is really funny mm. in Pelham. Wait a minute. I think I just figured out how they're going to get away. I'm listening. They're going to fly the train to Cuba. But in Die Hard, they, take, they bring a satirical humour to what is a very serious situation. There, there are funny moments, even with Alan Rickman, in his interaction with people. Canada, the five imprisoned leaders of Liberté de Québec. In Sri Lanka, the nine members of the Asian Dawn. What the fuck? I read about them in Time magazine. The levity that this adds actually contrasts wonderfully so that the action, the violence, the suspense that they build is even heightened because you've got these is these moments of relaxation for the audience. And I think it's so powerful. Just refer referencing quickly, Paul Gleason as Deputy Police Commissioner Dwayne T. Robinson. For our listeners out there, you might remember him as the principal uh, in The Breakfast Club. Agent Johnson and Special Agent Johnson, quick line, um, I'm Agent Johnson, this is Special Agent Johnson, no relation. If you know the movie well, Robert Davi is of Italian descent. Grand Bush is an African-American. And it's that kind of satirical line that works so wonderfully in Die Hard because all of this is going on outside while Bruce Willis is in the fight of his life with some very intelligent people in the building. And that contrast builds the suspense and it's really just so entertaining. It's almost like a kind of humour that I don't recognise in any other action movie. I like think it's, it's a, well, absurdist. If you look at the satire, it's a satire of bureaucracy. Yeah, you know, and and the, the the red tape and the the processes. Whereas yeah. you go back to what you were saying with New York, uh, mm. that New York humor is, hey, we're commoners and we're getting angry, which yeah. is what Bruce Willis is, you know. But then the satire of the humor in yeah. Die Hard is about, oh man, they're gonna. And it's an excellent plotting, satirical plot point in yeah. that they cut the electricity, which is exactly what they need to have done. <laughs> you know? I mean, what the cops do is so funny. <laughs> but I, I'm also thinking of, you know, when, you know, people have been shot up and stuff and he's crawling through a ventilator and yeah. it comes to a, um, the builders obviously had a naked picture, like had a Playboy or something. <laughs> yeah. And he goes, girls, and then moves on. And then there's well, a sound effect. And, goes, and, bang. Yeah, and then the music gives you this kind of <laughs> like cue, right? Mm -hmm. As if, let's all have a gag while these people 
are being traumatized out of their skin <laughs> on the on, on the on the 30th floor and i don't remember that existing before die hard i don't remember that you could have this really broad comedy in the same space as a very intense drama but you know I that kind of dissonance i don't remember in other action finally i want to say really quickly the nakatomi plaza and the concept of claustrophobia is as important to this film as anything in the film and I think credit goes to um, so Jackson Dagovia came on as designer after the the first person had had enough and said it wasn't going in the right direction. He brought a new vision to it. He called it the jump, bringing the jungle maze to urban Los Angeles. And so, for example, the concept of the ele- that that you were both talking about before, the elevator shafts, the staircases, running up the steps to thirty one, mm. thirty two, that's mm. under construction. Um, I'm going to get to this to my maison scene because I believe it's so important that they get the geography of Nakatomi yeah. right so that we can follow the action. I think we, there's a visceral sense of understanding how dangerous the situation is to McLean. And if you don't get the architecture right, if they don't succeed in this way, then I, then I really think that it's not that successful. We don't understand. Yeah. It becomes a bit of a schmozzle of, of gunfights. No, you're right. And I think that's what so signifies contemporary action, which yeah. is they show stuff, they show spaces, but what Die Hard does so brilliantly, it shows the relationship of spaces. So it shows people going upstairs and coming downstairs, and when they go upstairs, they merge into another place. I think that's so rare, that kind of establishment of space and the relationship between spaces. I remember checking out in uh, Transformers, Michael Bay, because yeah. I couldn't understand space or where these exactly. things were. They just was it's just so much shots of mess, and I didn't yeah. get it. I didn't. Yeah. And then, you know, that's the that whole emergence of chaos cinema that, that people talk about with people like Michael Bay, which if people are interested, check out a special journal issue on Michael Bay that I co-authored. <laughs> <laughs> okay, where, where, where can we get Sense this? Sense of Cinema, it's a free journal online. Um, but I'm really interested in that transition from kind of the spatial sensibility of a Pelham or the cinema of Michael Mann, which is an LA cinema, then into the LA cinema of like a Michael Bay. Michael Mann's an interesting reference because mm-hmm. Michael Mann insists on the the precision of his filming, yeah. even and, and, amidst and the, the highest. Yeah. It's so kind precise. Of relational spaces, are, you know, always in Michael Mann. You, but you, you look at I, I think of Jerry Lewis, Jacques Tati, yeah. Yeah. any of the silent guys, Jackie Chan. To do comedy right, you have to show space right. Yeah, because otherwise you don't. It That's doesn't. The jokes don't point. work because you don't know what's. Mm. You know, there's no setup, so you yeah. have to set up space as well. Yeah. I want to sum up with um, Bruce Willis in an interview in 2007. He said, if I hadn't done Die Hard, I'd rip it off. It, it's just hard to beat what they put together. And I think when you sit back, that's why I say it's, it's one of the, my favorite movies of all time. It's probably the movie that I first said, you know, as a kid, you can easily say, this is my favorite movie of all time at the moment. And for me, for a long time, it was Die Hard. I remember watching Midnight Run a little bit after Die Hard, <laughs> but it was too complex. The comedy was a little bit too subtle for, for, for you and I to understand. Mm. And we always had Die Hard on this pinnacle. It just never lost what it had then. And it's just, for me, a remarkable work. There you have it. That is the hot takes on both Die Hard and The Taking of Pelham 1, 2, 3. Mise en scène. Now it's time for our mise en scène where we zoom in on one scene or sequence from the film. Up first, it's Bruce with Pelham123. Bruce, what are you looking at? Yeah, thanks, Craig. Um, I'm looking at the money delivery scene, uh, which comes at about the two-thirds of the way through. The reason I picked it is because everybody listening can probably think of a movie 
where a bunch of guys rip off a place and the city or some group or someone in authority has to deliver money to those people. And I think Pelham sets a framework for this that channels just perfectly into the action movie and they build excitement around the action of delivering the money. So a couple of things I'll say about it. We'll know from the discussion so far, the terrorists are in the train. They're waiting for the money, the million dollars to be delivered. There's a coordinated, um, mind-blowingly complicated structure that is both political and it involves biases and prejudices and an election that's upcoming about where you're going to get the money and how it's going to get delivered. Finally, you get the go-ahead. And so a couple of things I want to say about how this all takes place. Um, something that jumps out at me is the music. I don't know if you guys thought mm -hmm. about the music in mm -hmm. Pelham, right? When I was watching it, I was sitting next to my wife, Rebecca, and I was going, oh, wow, that's a Lalo Schifrin soundtrack. Lalo Schifrin was an important sort of jazzy composer in early 70s action. Um, obviously, you guys know Dirty Harry very well. Yeah. And Dirty Harry is not only one of my favorite films, but one of my favorite film scores. And it's... I, I, I thought it might have been... When I was watching, I was going, is this Jerry Goldsmith? Yeah, right. It had yeah, a yeah. lot of that Planet of the Apes... You yeah. Know, yeah. That, yeah, that yeah. horn. So that sounds and horns. Haunting, yeah, and yeah. I, so it's got that. What I connect with this era of, uh, of action cinema, and it's definitely action, right, is that directors start thinking about new kinds of soundtracks. Mm. And it's really important to think about this in terms of the studios want to break away from classical Hollywood. Classical Hollywood has the taint of the old and it's not making money anymore. So what do you do? What if you bring jazz to genre, which sounds on the surface of things kind of stupid and almost absurd, but this is what they do. And it's, it kind of overly stylizes the genre overnight. So you got Dirty Harry, French Connection. Um, Lalo Schifrin becomes a key staple, and I'm convinced that the David Shire music, and I think David Shire did the music for the conversation, like mm -hmm. the same year that this is taking place. Um, and again, which is a kind of jazz piano soundtrack. They're going to use the music not only to accompany the action, but to build a sense of energy and speed and a sense of your own visceral charge in watching the delivery of the money. In terms of the way they cut it, and this is you're gonna see this again and again in the 90s and 2000s, all the shot lengths start to compress. You know, and this is like the trope, but I'm convinced you go back to the mid 70s, this is new, right? So by that, all I mean is most shot lengths are between like five, 10 seconds on average drama. If you watch that scene, they cut between money kind of rifling through the, the, the money counter um, and they cut to hands, they cut back to the train, they cut back to the vehicles that are waiting to take the money. So it's like you're watching it and it's frenetic action. It's building you into this frenetic action. So the shot lengths just drop dramatically, right? At the same time, the sound mix just goes through the roof. It's totally mad. So when you watch the scene, all the sound effects are brought up by like 100%. So mm. the money rifling starts to sound like, almost like staccato gunshots. Like it's so loud in your ears, right? And again, it's giving us, I've written here in my notes, it's, gi it's giving us this action wall of sound 
that's just going to be the basis of virtually every action movie you're going to see in the 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s. Think about all these scenes in the Bourne films, um, all the, in the Schwarzenegger films of the 80s, where you've got this wall of sound action. The only other thing I wanted to say was you then have the coverage of the city that comes directly out of the money delivery scene and you're cutting across, I mentioned before, all the zones of the city and the different locales. It's just a perfect example of the way the action genre is going to bring the whole city together. And we talked a lot about this today between Pelham and Die Hard, that maybe the great achievement of both movies is to give the viewer a perfect sense of geographic space. Yeah, That whole scene is just a marvel of choreography in space, and it's pretty classical time. Nothing weird happens. So that, 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 that's my take on this. This is going to set I, a template for the whole action cinema uh, the, for decades to come. There's a moment in that which I, today when I was watching it, I was so excited. The car that crashes and falls over, yep. they're, they're racing back the other way, yep. you know, mm. get back to that yeah, station, yeah, yeah. burn rubber. And then we drive past in a shot that can't be longer than five seconds the crane trying to correct the car, <laughs> which is like it's to show not you only that is spatially fantastic. making me go, yes, I know where we're going back, yep. but yep. also like a fantastic thought yep. on set yep. to go, we should pick up a shot yeah. of those motorbikes whizzing past this or the, yep. the car. It's so it's like documentary. It's like something yeah. that. And it's and it's done in a way. It's not featuring it. Yep. It just happens to be there, yeah. which makes it so much realer. It's, it's great, and it's kind of like an, I, I see it as it's real because it's the reality of the city. I see it as really immersive mm. because you understand cognitively the space and the time that it's all happening in, but they're hardwiring you to cut into faster and faster kind of kinetic senses. And so it's not just that you feel like you're in this space, but you feel like you're in a space that's totally out of control. I'll tell and, you something. And just racing. You look at the way they make cinema now digitally. Mm. That kind of discussion is had in post-production by some third-in-charge rotoscoper <laughs> going over to their boss going, hey, shouldn't? If this is happening here, shouldn't that be in the back of shot? Mm. And it's put in the back of shot way off in the distance, yep. inconsequential, because they didn't plan yep. for it. But that they had to plan to have the crane there yep. to lift that up, to shoot that shot. That was in the day-to-day the -day shooting schedule. That yeah. was like a proper, well-thought-out moment. I still think way too little has been made of the way we lost a sense of um, physical material space and time with the move to digital. Because if you think about that idea of putting something in the background... Mm. Like, what is that as a composition? What is that as a kind of proper harmonious space, right? If you're just sticking something in the background, exactly. how do I know perceptually what that's supposed to be? But look it also doesn't like? work as a viewer on the first viewing. I'm watching, you know, you read Reddit movie things and then someone goes, oh, I found this in the background of this blah, 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 blah. But this is 10 years later by someone who's watched <laughs> the film 100 times and they finally worked something yeah. out. That's not how you're but supposed to tell. But also background because they, they're thinking about background as pictorial background. You're talking about post-production insertion of something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're completely different fields, right? Bruce, I just wanted to ask, where does Dirty Harry sit in terms of timing with this film? 71. So, four, three, like, say, three, four years. So, you know, Clint Eastwood being the bag man in Dirty Harry yeah. is one mm. of my favourite ever sequences in, in film. Yep. But the music was Dirty Harry as yep. well. I think you're right in that this was going on at the time. Oh, the David Shire score in, in uh, Pelham is absolutely influenced by the Dirty Harry score, the Lalo Schifrin score. And Schifrin's doing stuff all the way through the early 70s. So this idea of kind of using jazz as a way of, like I've written in my notes here, like the intervals of jazz are, are, are kind of more dissonant than we expect. So the idea of a dissonant 
accompanying musical soundtrack. It's just weird for most people in cinema. So when you're watching Pelham, it's kind of like, what the hell's going on here? But what that's doing is it's abrasive. It's, it's energizing you because of the dissonance. I mean, you look at genre and ex- and black exploitation and all yeah. the other exploitation forms from the 70s. Yep. They're all scored with this kind of fast-paced, eclectic, yeah. bizarre music, yep. uh, lounge music, jazz music. Yep. You look at, um, I'm a big fan of giallo, Italian yeah. stuff, yeah. all of the cr- crime and, and, and horror stuff. And I love the soundtracks. I love Fabio Frizzi and Stelio <laughs> Capriani and yeah, just so yeah, many yeah. crazy And composers. what about in um, Deep Red? Yeah. The, what's the band... That, goblin. Um, goblin. Oh, I mean, the <laughs> Goblin. I have that on um, vinyl. Yeah. The Goblin soundtrack in Deep Red is just, that's dissonance, right? So that's where some of this is going to go, but you can already see it influentially in a mainstream New York action movie. All right, let's move on now. Herschel, what's your miss on scene for Die Hard? Take two. Okay, so our listeners out there might be expecting other scenes. There are so many famous ones, John McClane jumping off the building at the end in research for the Safanda. That was the first scene that they filmed. Um, nearly went horribly wrong uh, because the explosion Jeez. pushed him so far, he just hit the bag uh, when Whoa. he came down. So many famous scenes. But I've actually chosen to go with something people may not expect. This is Joseph Takagi's murder quite near the start of the film. The reason I've picked Takagi's murder is that, as I was saying earlier, the, the geography or the spatial awareness of the Nakatomi building, especially the 30th floor, 31st floor, is important for the viewer to understand exactly what's going on. If we can't place ourselves in the, the labyrinth of the plaza, then we won't really understand what the danger is or the suspense that's building. I think that uh, Degovia, so Jackson Degovia, the, the, the designer of this, came in with the idea of, I think I used the phrase before, the jungle maze. He was trying to take the jungle maze to the Nakatomi Plaza. So we see, you know, lots of movement in and out of corridors and down elevator shafts and so much of that. And it's, it's you know, it's really exhilarating, but it wouldn't work if it was just a massive confusion for the viewer. So I guess my suggestion is that in the Takagi murder, we get a, f- a first sense of the geography of a key part of the Nakatomi building. So McKinnon, the director, has two shots here. First, we've got the boardroom table. This is with Hans Gruber, our, our villain, asking for the code to unlock the first access point. It's actually a pleasant conversation. What's interesting about this is the way that Alan Rickman and, and Takagi is played by James Shigita, the way they speak to each other, they're both super cool. Mm. Both of them dressed mm. in, you know, that expensive suit that he references mm. in the elevator. Well, to speak, that speaks to your Goldfinger James Bond stuff. Like, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So what's interesting is that Takagi... He's going, he's going head-to-head with, with Gruby, uh, bluffing his way through it, and ends up saying, well, he's just going to have to kill me. Um, then we frame on Gruby, he starts counting. What I love about it is he then removes the silencer from the gun, and mm. he just rotates oh, his right. elbow. About that. Oh, fantastic. I've never thought about oh, it's that. It's fantastic. So that's a deliberate thing by oh, him, absolutely. so that everyone can and hear then, it. And then he runs out at the oh, end. Oh, oh, it's fantastic. That's so yeah. good. That's what I'm saying. There's so much going on in Die Hard, and you've got to say to the you know, there's a team working here. They're looking at all the detail. They, you know, it looks easy, but it's never been done this way. I wonder who's responsible for that. I wonder if that was Alan Rickman but bringing only, that. But not only, that's not only just clever, yeah. but I can imagine that in another version of Die Hard done by other people, he actually says, um, I'm going to remove the silencer yeah. so that those people who are screaming out, they're going to hear what I'm about to do. I can imagine that in another screenplay. Absolutely. But in Die Hard... 
you have to process that, mm. right? Well, it's, a, it's an incredibly mature script. I think it requires a lot of the audience. Mm. Uh, what's important then is he shoots the Kagi. Now, this is the first real act of violence that we've seen in the film. We've never seen any blood. We've had a few people shooting into the air when they take hostages, but we don't really know what Groob is capable of, and it's an incredibly violent scene, even in the mm. 80s. His head gets blown out the back, paints the back mm. um, glass door, and this is the genius for me of the, the really first setup of the shot. So yeah, McTiernan cuts, and we go straight to McLean. We get the close shot on McLean, and again, this is where you got to go to Bruce Willis' acting chops because that close-up of Willis and the fear and this, you know, the stun that he is at the moment, completely believable. He's, he's so afraid, in fact. He backs up and knocks into the table, mm -hmm. setting off the alarm bells for Gruber and Carl and Marco that are in the other room. In the background, we've got McLean moving backward. They come through the door. They open the door, which is covered in blood. That's like, mm. It's just positioned the audience yeah. now. This is a serious... Movie and now. It's perfect how you describe it because what it does is it can it connects all the frames of the drama. Exactly. You know, but it's not false it's not just cutting randomly. It's this connects to that in this way because this triggers this moment. Absolutely. Yeah, now we don't well see thought out. We don't see McLean run from there, which I think is very clever. What we see is we see Carl come through with his machine gun. Mm. As Carl walks along, of course we've got the blood in the background on the door. As he walks along, if you look on the right hand side, you can see through the windows onto um the table where Takagi is dead. Mm. So we're getting a real sense yep. of the geography of this. As Carl proceeds, you, you now think, well, this is serious. What's McLean going to do? And that's where there's genius in what they do. Every time McLean escapes by, you know, by a hair's breadth, you never say to yourself, well, that's a bit convenient. It's mm -hmm. always very clever. Mm. Carl comes up, he pulls on a door. McLean has locked it. But then we cut to McLean on the other side of the door and he's standing with his head against it with his gun pulled. But it's not a Schwarzenegger kind of McLean. It's not McLean hoping that they bust the door open so he can kill them all. It's McLean in absolute fear, hoping that please don't open this door. This happens a number of times in the movie. But what happens now is that McLean runs up the stairs. He is on the run again like a rat running from, from the pursuers. But what we've learned through this scene is we've got the hostages out there. We've got the boardroom over here. We've got the blood on the on the window, which will be referenced again and again as as the camera comes past. Mm -hmm. And we've got McLean linking us to the other floors. I think what McTean and and, and uh, Degovia over here, what what they achieve, is placing the audience into a well known Perfect. place. Did you know if they um had like a schematic of the building? Not 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 the Nakatomi. I mean, in the in the the story world of the film. Had they mapped out how the action works within the building oh, structure? I think they must have. Because I would love to see such a, 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 a blueprint or a draw. That would be great to see. What's interesting is that they recuse all the way along for the audience. And I find that really fascinating. So, for example, when McLean, and, you know, as a young person, I was thinking, what's he doing there? When he puts that stick up there and he flicks the, the unlock on the lift doors, yes. which is a safety mechanism. When he opens that and gets into the lift shaft, you, there's a number on for what floor it is when he jumps mm -hmm. out. So it's 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 mm. placing you and every as Craig step of was the saying, way. there's a later killing scene where he's been where he's, he's, he's scurrying away from the terrorists, and you pass by Takagi's dead body, the, and and, and the then it's significantly later. Well, that so that in that sequence in particular, the idea that d d the designer was talking about what is it jung jungle jungle, jungle maze. maze jungle maze that desk sequence where the guy the terrorist is on top and he's crawling underneath. I don't know if you remember, it moves in a zigzag fashion, yes. the boardroom yep. table. It's like a rat in a hole, and isn't it? And he's actually yeah, yeah. moving in a zigzag. Yeah, which is very maze-like, but it's a boardroom mm. table in a high-fashioned 
environment, like in that in that boardroom, looks mm. very high class, right? Which mm. is like what you were talking about with Wall Street yep. in that in that table scene where it's all yeah. artifice and and, and also it brings into a kind of interesting space, mm. which is that tension between a kind of global, you know, corporate money yeah. and Hans, who is a terrorist and he's a capitalist in his own right. But he clearly wants to be thought of as this kind of elite yes. old world. And, his, and remember, know, he's not anger, but he's kind of petulance when when um, when Bonnie Bedelia, John McClane's wife, says, you're nothing but a common thief. And, mm-hmm. he, and he turns, and this is Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, really. Like, that's his face that he has. <laughs> and he says, I am an exceptional thief, Mrs. McClane. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and like, yeah. it resonates wonderfully. Mm. One final point I want to make is, so when McClane realizes how bad this is, he runs to the roof so he can get a signal. That roof obviously is so important because he's going to jump off the roof at the end. What was what impressed me when I watched Die Hard again for this podcast is I really think nothing was left to chance. Mm. John McTiernan's on a hot run at this point, and he's going to do Hunt for Red October. He sort of loses Don't his way the a little bit. He's Medicine Man. So I was going to say he loses his <laughs> way, but Medicine Man, Sean Connery with a crazy ponytail. Um, so he's Zardos version two. <laughs> <laughs> well, things things ended up going really bad for him because remember John McTiernan then was accused of uh, uh, stalking, um, right? It, well, he was he microphoned or yeah, he, he bugged um, some other director's uh, office. Why to get some ideas or something? Uh, like yeah, that. like. I don't wow, know, five, ten years ago, he was yeah. having some was real... In a, a lot of truth. Well, people oh, criminal oh, talked about McTiernan and he was going to be the greatest action director in history. Sure. Because of that run that he was on, and then it all just fell apart. Medicine Man was the start of it all falling apart mm-hmm. for him. I, I'd like to make an observation about Die Hard, which is there's the sequence where the safe opens, and it's the first time that Ode to Joy really <laughs> kicks in orchestrally, and yeah. it swells... And you feel as good as they do. But do you remember how right. the lights... T- the yeah, yeah, the, the lights, lights come on, the and doors Theo open. And, and Theo's kind of... It's almost... It's kind of religious. Yeah, it's, it's religious, it's but it's also... <laughs> it, it gives you empathy for them. It yeah, makes absolutely. you be on their side. Yeah. And I think the best action, the best horror, the best any film, are old school Greek tragedy in that circumstance puts you both at heads not because someone is purely good or purely evil it's because of circumstance it's just that there's been a misunderstanding and something horrible will now come of it one of my favorite lines is where he goes theo you ask for a miracle i give you the miracle it's christmas so it's the time of christ and Mm -hmm. that's woven through the movie in really interesting ways so i'm really fascinated by this is a movie that's about tradition in some way. It's about Christmas and families, and McLean's got to get his family back and get his wife back and his daughters. And gonna, you know, everyone's going to be happy. But at the same time, it's about corporate global America <laughs> and these voracious. You know, there's a big subtext in this movie about, as you say, Craig. Those they're from different circumstances, but we can connect to all these circumstances. Yeah. There's a real subtext of. In fact, it's actually hinted at, I think, by Hans at one point, that Nakatomi and Takagi might be this like voracious capitalist fiends who are going through Southeast Asia buying up stuff. You know, that that's like a subtext in Die yeah. Hard. So I, I think there's a there's work that's been done on this in film scholarship where it looks at the kind of ideological f- like frameworks that what we take to be straight action is actually putting together. I I, I have to bring up the misogyny in both films. Mm. It's subtler in Die Hard. In in, in in the first film, there is a bizarre... I'm watching it today because the, the sneezing of the character who sneezes mm. and him saying Gesundheit 
is an oh, excellent yeah. plot point. And I noticed it's the That's first great. line <laughs> of the film, so to speak, yep. is that guy it's sneezing. So early. Yeah. yeah, and then it happens at least twice where he, Walter Matthau says it over the radio to him, yep. and then it's the final beat of the film, and it's a brilliant final yep. piece. What a great, it's, um, you know, like, it's almost a sitcom tro- ending. Yeah. I feel like uh, I'm going to hear the yep. Perfect Strangers theme. But on it's that also, last I, did you predict it? No, the first time I watched I thought, it, I'd never. How are they going to get it. this guy? Yeah, like he's and and the way that Martin Balsam plays it, he's so kind he's of fantastic. You believe that scene? Yeah. Fantastic. And then the sneeze. Sorry if we bothered you, Mister Longman. Gesundheit. Gesundheit. Freeze. Yeah, yeah, it's so amazing. good. Okay, but with that in mind, because I remembered the sneeze from the first time, my first viewing. This is my second viewing today. I watched it, and I was waiting for all of the anti-women stuff to pay off because there's just this constant thing of who's <laughs> the who's the person who's, who's the, the undercover cop? employee and yeah 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 <laughs> uh, we can't let broads in because they're going <laughs> to screw everything up and there's just this constant thing where i thought oh well they're setting something up but unfortunately <laughs> In so 1974, no, it's, it's just, it's it was the, yeah. the masculine fear of women in Yeah, But the line, I think it's Walter Matthau. Doesn't he say something like, somebody says, oh, the only person we've got in the subway at the moment is a, is is an a broad from somewhere. Well, it's an undercover cop. And then he goes, and then someone says, is it a man or a woman? And then someone, and then another thing, and he goes, even if it's a broad, like he, they just keep rubbishing. But isn't rubbishing. there a line somewhere where Walter Matthau says something like, well, she's done, she's gotten further than anyone else so far. Yeah, because I like thought that. there was there's a there's one line. I think it's Walter Matthau where he actually kind of resists this really yeah. misogynistic. I think he says something um, along the lines of what does it matter who it something is. Something like, like that, that. Yeah. Yeah, which yeah. I thought was interesting in the mid-70s because, I mean, you know, it's like American industry. This is fiercely patriarchal stuff. Yeah. And so I, I, I thought it was interesting that here's a movie that was actually talking about women coming into the workforce well, and, I mean, and it, what it that is, meant. It, it is interesting, but <laughs> it's kind of like... 80% to 20% yeah. or maybe 90% to 10%. Yep. I, yep. I wanted it to pay off and I wanted it to be... Because I think there's an element of smart filmmakers can future-proof films by just being aware of, well, that's probably shitty behaviour. Yeah. Maybe in the future it's going to be even worse. People will see it as a worse behaviour. Yeah. But I was just hoping that this was going to pay off with a, <laughs> you know, a woman is the undercover cop yeah. and saves everyone or something like that. It didn't quite pay no, off. No such <laughs> no. And, and I think in, in Die Hard... <sighs> I don't know if it's uh, if it's misogynist or not, but there's a, there's a, a plot point I, I've always noticed, which is the watch that she's given mm. by the corporation for leaving, and and of course she's changed her name to back to Genero instead of McLean. So the her having this job represents the destruction of what um, Bruce Willis wants yep. or what the masculine wants. And in fact, it's a she becomes the empowered woman absolutely yeah but has to give that up she has to give it up and it is in the moment i don't know if you remember hans gruber is holding on to her watch in that final moment and they have to undo the watch from her arm so that he can die and they can live and move forward absolutely in the correct way so to speak and then in the very last scene when it's either the news reporter or al powell when yeah. He introduced and he says Holly Janeiro, and she goes Holly McLean. Yeah, yeah. Like the perfect yeah, affirmation of the, the atomic family values. is these brought back. Values, yeah. But yeah. having said that, don't forget that when he's talking to his sidekick outside, Reginald Val Johnson, um, when he says that she got a, a great opportunity, great job that turned into a great career, and I was too dumb to follow her. Mm. Like he acknowledges that 
he was the he was the yeah. the loser in the entire yeah, yeah, and in number two in the myth in the mythic structure then is he was too dumb to follow her. What he does is he solves a whole bunch of people. He saves a whole bunch of people at Nakatomi, and she has to follow him. Yeah, but Hans Gruber. I mean, I I don't I don't dispute that at all. But Hans Gruber, she becomes the person who facilitates that entire saving of the people yeah, inside. Well, she takes the lead. And right? remember, yeah. he says to her, "Mr. Takagi chose his people well, Miss." And she goes, Miss Gennaro. Gennaro. Yeah. Gennaro. I mean, the other thing I'd say is, don't forget in number two, McLean has moved to Los Angeles <laughs> um, to support her. So yeah. he's now a cop in Los Angeles. Yeah, but don't forget in number three, she's <laughs> she's left him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but now he's got Sam Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, if you think about it as a franchise, that's really interesting. You're tracing late 80s through the 90s. Mm. Like this is a, a, a moment of kind of, you know, post second wave feminism and and these huge debates and and tensions around what's going to happen for women in the workplace, but in in society, and you've got Die Hard. <laughs> Clearly, it's it's a patriarchal narrative, right? Yeah. But that's what was part mm. of action cinema. Die Hard Two, which is even more patriarchal, really, because she's just on a plane waiting to land, yeah, and then and she's just looking for him everywhere. Well, she's certainly she just a spectator in Die Hard. But then in I number think. three, she's left him. Mm. That's intriguing. Why did she leave him? Interestingly, right. Diard ends up at number five, where we currently are. That's where his son, that's set in Moscow. Now, that's an absolute <laughs> lemon of a movie. But at that point, what? Bruce Willis is it's doing it. It's in Moscow? Yeah, it's set in Moscow. Oh, so, man. I mean, <laughs> I, I haven't watched So, it. I mean, for me, that's I probably the, the great sadness of the movies. I was reading an article today, actually, where it said one of, one of the sadnesses about Diard is that the McLean character increasingly gets watered down with every movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, I enjoy Die Hard too. I think it's fun. Yeah, there are aspects of Die Hard with a Vengeance that I find fun. I love Samuel Jackson in pretty much everything. The scene in Die Hard 2 where he gets out of the drain. Like yeah. The, it's yeah. just magnificent. That's filmed yeah. in like seven different seven places. And, you know? and the way they've cut it wow. and a plane come. I don't know how they've done the effect. I think the effect is still one of the great effects. Mm. Yeah, mm. It's the first movie I saw. Um, Bruce and I went with my mum and dad to watch a Penrith Hayden, right? Yep. We came in. My parents got into an argument that night because they couldn't find a parking space. And Bruce and I are going, <laughs> Jesus <laughs> Christ, this movie's going to start. This is a true like, story. We're I actually remember we're that night, get traumatized. Yeah, we're because panicked because we were because so we're excited to die out and my parents got into So then we come fight. in, we get a park eventually. <laughs> I don't know, my dad probably parked in front of a, a 24-hour garage or something. But we go in and we're thinking, oh, great, it's only like, it, it kind of started because the credits and everything. First movie I've ever seen where there's no credits because it just goes, eh, Die Hard. Oh, and yeah, yeah, die yeah, hard yeah. And you're going... Just a title. Wow, this down. Is, everything's yeah. changed. Okay. They also knew the brand. You could do anything with Die Hard. You could call it Die Harder. Yeah, which was ridiculous. Maybe the dumbest title in film history and get away with it. Mm-hmm. What about Dennis Franz? There's oh, a shout-out to Dennis Franz who goes on to NYPD Blue One, like five Emmys or something like that. But Dennis Franz, he's in Scanners, right? Dennis yep. Franz is the yeah. drive in <laughs> Scanners, the cop. Do you mean the Cronenberg Scanners? Yeah. Oh, really, I can't even remember, yeah. yeah. Um, and... Dennis Franz in Die Hard 2, the foul-mouthed nature of that the, guy. The character of Dennis Franz's character in Die Hard 2 is a, is just he's continuing the performance of his character in The Palmer's Dress to Kill. It's exactly the same character. <laughs> so I haven't seen Dress to Kill in years, so Dennis oh, Franz is in that. We should do that one sometime like on the that, podcast. Yeah. There you have it. Die Hard versus uh, The Taking of Pelham 1, 2, 3. I'm going to say, my personal opinion is... I can't go past Die Hard. Uh, you know, it's formative for our lives. Discovering Pelham, for me, I only saw it last year for the first time and was blown away. Mm. And I felt like it was a natural 
um, relative or prototype for Die Hard. It yeah. felt like and the not just humor Hard, and the action. Whole, yeah, a whole generation of action movies. And I hope that it, by pairing it with Die Hard for this podcast, we will have brought people to watch. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, that's yeah. if if I could say one thing, give Pelham One Two Three a go. Don't start with Tony Scott. Go back because there's so much worth in going through Pelham, uh, French Connection. All the those movies that capture, you know, Dirty Harry. There's mm. so much value in seeing it the way it was created then. For me, Die Hard is just simply one of the greatest movies of all time. In I'm biased on that, but stood the test of time. Um, changed the world forever. Well, there you have it. Die Hard wins hands down <laughs> in the battle between Die Hard and the taking of Pelham One Two Three. Thank you for joining me, Bruce and Herschel. Don't forget to subscribe or follow us on your podcast app so that you'll see our new episodes pop up each week. Join us next time for two very different treatments of teenage angst as we compare a cultural relic from the 1980s in Revenge of the Nerds to a modern fantasy about progressive high school lives in Olivia Wilde's Booksmart. Yes, it's going to get controversial. <laughs> Goodbye for now, and see you next time. Take two. Film. Verse. Film. Verse.